morning. My name is Andrew. So I was one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures uh, this morning. Uh, many of you, no doubt, are aware of the name or perhaps have heard the name Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Patrick Mahomes is an ace quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. He was the MVP of the NFL last year. Just a, an incredible talent. And, and last year had a phenomenal off-the-charts year. This year, uh, week one, he got injured and hurt his ankle. And, and that's been kind of laming his play a little bit. And so the past couple of weeks, the Kansas City Chiefs haven't been doing as well because they're going to go as far as Mahomes can, can kind of take them in his position. And uh, folks around the Kansas City area have been getting quite desperate, thinking about the health of their quarterback and his bum ankles. And so what one church decided to do just outside of Kansas City, Missouri, was to host a prayer gathering uh, to pray for his healing. And so on Wednesday night this past week, uh, the church gathered together to pray for his ankles. They wanted Mahomes' ankles to be healed so that he could be restored to health and lead the Chiefs on into the playoffs and beyond. But uh, they got together Wednesday night. Then on Thursday night, the Chiefs had their next game, and they played on Thursday night this past week, and it did not seem like the prayers were answered. Uh, if you follow football at all, that night he actually dislocated his kneecap, and now he's worse off than he was before they gathered to pray. Well, here in today's passage, we're going to look at a healing that doesn't have such a sad, sad direction. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 3, because we're going to see a man who also had bad ankles, who had bad feet. He had some type of congenital defect, and his health was poor, and he hadn't been able to walk in 40 years, and so his friends would bring him to the temple uh, regularly throughout the week, and they would place him right outside of what's called the beautiful gate, and as worshipers would come to the temple to pray, uh, at usually one of the three scheduled times where prayer would take place in the temple, and, and they would place him there, and he would beg for alms. He would ask for money. He was dependent upon other people's generosity. He was dependent upon other people's sacrifices. So they come and they drop this man there, and he is uh, asking for help from different people who are passing by, and then two apostles by the name of Peter and John. These were some OG disciples, the original gang of disciples that ran with Jesus, and then after Jesus' resurrection, they became the apostles, and it was upon their testimony that the church would be founded in the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament. Well, Peter and John come walking by this lame man, and he looks up to them and asks for help, and Peter uh, says, call, locks eyes with him, and he says, you know, I don't have any money to give you, but what I have to give you uh, is, is much better than that, and so he says to this lame man with bum ankles and feet, he says, I want you to rise up and walk, and then he took the man's hand, and he lifted the man up, and not only did he stand, and not only he walked, there's an important detail there that says that he began to leap. He began to jump up and down in response to what Jesus had done for him through the apostles. And what's interesting in the book of Acts, you have about 14 moments like this, about 14 healings that take place in the book of Acts. This is the first of them. And in many ways, you and I can kind of understand the meaning of miracles in the New Testament, the meaning of healings like this in the New Testament uh, by zeroing in on this one story. If you and I understand this story and kind of what goes down and why it happened the way that it did, you and I can get a read on all the miracles and on all the healings and all the signs that would take place in the book of Acts. And what you find in this man's life and, and all that would transpire with his healing and now he's leaping and it's all being done in the name of Jesus is that healing and praying for healing and miracles and all those sorts of things. They 
We should not trivialize them by directing them towards football teams to win football games, right? Uh, We want to treat them as God intends for them to be treated. That is, activity of Jesus in and through his people that's designed to draw everyone's attention to Jesus. We are learn in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, that, that the apostles, that, that many things were happening through the apostles. Lots of signs and wonders were being done through them. And that word sign is important because the healings and the miracles that take place in the New Testament, they are to serve as signs. And everyone knows what signs do. Signs give us direction. Signs call our attention to a certain path that we are to follow to get to a certain destination. Well, you hold that in mind and you look at the healing of the lame man and all the other miracles and wonders that are performed through the apostles and you discover what they're pointing to. You discover the direction that they are taking our attention, the direction that they are drawing our faith, the direction that they are really taking the hope that we have as we journey through a world that is broken through a world that is marred by sin and suffering, and we move towards a world that is going to come and a world that will not be contaminated or polluted by any hint of sin, suffering, or anything like that. And so there's about four things I want to call your attention to in light of this passage, four things that that this miracle, this healing kind of draws our attention to, the first of which is this, that the healings that were performed by Jesus through the apostles, it's very important that we understand that that's how it happened. Peter makes this very clear whenever he begins to explain what just went down and he stands up to address the crowd that had gathered in response to seeing this man jumping up and down and everyone knew who he was. And so they come to Peter and he says, look, I want you to know that this healing didn't happen because we were godly. And this healing did not happen because we were inherently powerful. He says, no, this healing happened uh, because Jesus did it. And he says, Jesus worked this miracle through us, but it didn't happen due to anything Due to anything that was inherent to us, it had everything to do with Jesus. And so when you think about this miracle that is done by the apostles, you got to understand that oftentimes these miracles and healings are designed to accredit Jesus' servants. That is to provide accreditation for the ministry that his servants were embarking upon in the first century. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2 where uh, we read about the apostles. The writer of Hebrews says, this salvation had its beginning when it was spoken by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. That he, the writer here is referring to the, the, those who heard Jesus, those who saw Jesus, those who would be known as apostles of Jesus. And so verse 15 of chapter 3 Peter would even say this, we were witnesses of the resurrection. And this miracle is designed to give us accreditation in your eyes so that you would know that if you're going to learn about Jesus, you need to learn about Jesus from us. That we were eyewitnesses of him. We were disciples that physically interacted with him. And he taught us many things. And, and this sign, is this miracle, this healing of the lame man is designed to give us accreditation, so to speak. So that you can know that we are now those who are advancing the kingdom of God that Jesus brought into the world through his life and his death and his resurrection. This is why when you read through the New Testament... Most of the, all of the New Testament is tied in some discernible way to the testimony or the witness of the apostles. 
This is what Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, that, that it is upon the foundation of the apostles that the church is built. It is the fact that we are listening to, the, to their witness, to their testimony. In other words, if you want to know about Jesus, you have to listen to the apostles. If you want to know about Jesus, you have to read the New Testament. It doesn't really matter what anyone's opinion about Jesus is. The definitive testimony to who Jesus is and what Jesus is about us comes to us through the apostles. And we know that Jesus authorized them. We know that Jesus gave them credit and uh, accreditation, so to speak, by the signs and the wonders he performed through them in the New Testament. So this miracle, it accredits, it accredits Jesus' servants. And that's true of the apostles. But there's a sense in which you and I can think about this in light of the church today. There's a sense in which what goes down in this story serves as you and I follow in the wake of the apostles, we find our accreditation as well. And what I love about this is that in Acts chapter 3, you find the apostles ministering to the entire person. Yes, there is a healing where they care for a man who's physically disabled. And Jesus heals this man through their word, through their activity. And then after that, Peter steps up and he begins to preach a message. And in this message, he starts talking about the heart. He starts talking about the soul. He starts calling for people to repent and to believe in this Jesus and to come to him for forgiveness and for restoration and for hope. So what you find in Acts chapter 3 is, is this holistic approach, this willingness to care for the whole person. And one of the things that gives us accreditation as the people of Jesus in the world today is our commitment to caring for the whole person. This is why we meet physical needs in our city and we meet physical needs in the lives of those around us. This is why we bear witness to the gospel and we speak the message of the gospel consistently and uh, passionately and faithfully because we are committed as a church to caring for the whole person. And when the city of Seattle begins to see Jesus' people caring for the whole person, that is going to, in a sense, accredit us or give us credibility in the eyes of those who are wanting to know more about Jesus and who are wanting to discover what the gospel is all about. Well, the gospel is about care for the whole person. We don't separate the body and the soul. We do believe the soul and the heart is most important, that that is ultimate, but we don't bypass the needs of the body just to get to the heart. No, we engage the whole person. We care for the whole person. The apostles set this example in this story. In the church, from that point on, when it was most faithful and most fruitful in the societies that God had placed her in, that's exactly what the church did. This is why the church was responsible for the starting of hospitals all over the world. This is why the church was responsible for starting schools all over the world. They were caring for the whole person, and you and I follow in the apostles' wake by doing the same, by doing the same thing. Now, when it comes to miracles and healings, though, we do, as a church, believe that Jesus heals people physically. We believe that he does miracles still today. We would affirm that. But what we do not do as a church is we do not say, okay, Jesus heals people. Therefore, we're not going to worry about medicine or technology. And we're just going to uh, depend upon Jesus to heal every person's ailment through some miraculous intervention. And the reason why we don't go to that extreme is because the New Testament won't let us. The apostles, yes, they experienced Jesus healing people and performing miracles through them, but it didn't happen every time. And there was a friend of Paul's that he had to leave behind on one missionary journey because he got sick. And this friend of Paul's apparently was not able to be healed by Paul or Peter or anyone. And so they had to leave him in the home that he was in because he was sick. He was 
ill. And then we also know in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that Paul would tell Timothy, look, your stomach's messed up and water's not doing anything for you, so I want you to drink some wine. You need to take some wine for your stomach because there was something that his body needed that wine could provide. And so he would tell Timothy to do that. And so there's a sense in which as we care for the whole person, we want to use every, every resource that God gives us, every resource that is at our disposal. So we use medicine. We use technology. We pray for healing. We expect God to intervene in miraculous ways, but we also expect God to use ordinary means of grace, the ordinary means of medication and technology. So we're not afraid of those things. We would never advise a family who has a sick child to avoid hospitals and to avoid doctors and just to sit back and to pray for it. No, we're going to encourage them to pray for their kid. We're going to come alongside them, and we're going to pray for their kid as well, just as James 5 would tell us to. But we're also going to utilize the other means that God has put by his common grace into society to care for the whole person. And so when it comes to this dynamic in the passage, it, it accredits this miracle and the message that follows, it accredits Jesus' servants. And when you and I kind of move in that direction, we're going to find our credibility growing and our fruitfulness expanding in the city of Seattle when they see the church caring for the whole person not neglecting the body nor the soul in our ministry to people. A guy by the name of N.T. Wright said this very well in his book, uh, Surprised by Hope. He said, our ministry will flourish best when the church, simultaneously to proclaiming the message that is sharing the gospel, gives itself to works of mercy and beauty, pointing to love and justice of God and highlighting the glory of creation and the glory of that creation yet to be revealed. This is why we move in. We want to follow in the wakes of the apostles. We want our lives and our church to be built upon the foundation they lay in the book of Acts. So we care for the whole person. Secondly, this meaning, this miracle, and this message, it affirms Jesus' identity. And this may be the most important factor to what goes down here, that it actually affirms Jesus' identity before the crowd or to the crowd that Peter stands up and that he addresses. It affirms it in several ways. As you see several kind of titles and names given of Jesus in Peter's sermon, the first of which is that Jesus is referred to as the servant He's referred to as the servant in verse 13. Then when you come to the very end of the whole message of verse 26, he comes back to this idea of servant. Now, he uses the word servant. Understand that he is hearkening back to the Old Testament, that the prophet Isaiah, who wrote about 700 and some odd years prior to this moment, he's screaming in the background of Acts chapter 3. His shadow looms large in everything that is going on in this miracle and in Peter's message. And so in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, we are introduced to uh, someone called God's servant. It says, this is my servant, or the Lord says, this is my servant, I strengthen him, this is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him, he will bring justice to the nations. Now keep in mind when the Old Testament speaks about justice, it's not just talking about, you know, personal human rights that exist in a society or a culture. Justice in the Old Testament refers to a culture of salvation that the Messiah would bring in. It's a reference to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God's ethics and the kingdom of God's priorities. That's what justice is in reference to. But here, this justice, this culture of salvation is going to be brought in by the servant. And then throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah, you have a series of what's called servant songs where this servant is talked about in a myriad of ways. 
And then when Peter stands, steps up to preach, right after a lame man is healed and he begins to leap for joy, he calls attention to Jesus being the servant, that Jesus is the one that Isaiah was prophesying about. He's the one who has come to serve. Now, this is where Christianity gets incredibly unique. You will not find another religion or spirituality that does this. There are many people who step into Christianity and they think, okay, the goal of the Christian life is to be Jesus' servant. And they'll sometimes define Christianity as that, that we are servants of Jesus. And there's a sense in which that is true. But do you understand that becoming a Christian doesn't mean you become a servant of Jesus. Becoming a Christian means you let yourself be served by Jesus. Anytime we say we're saved by grace, that's what we're saying. We're saying Jesus is serving us by saving us. That he is the servant who came to us when we were in need. He was the servant who met us when we are lame and crippled, spiritually speaking. He's the one who poured out his grace and his mercy into our lives, not because we served him, but because he served us. This is why you can't be a Christian apart from humility. This is why many people are too proud to be saved because they're too proud to let themselves be served. We don't want to be served because we think that we are powerful in and of ourselves. We're strong enough in and of ourselves. We're just going to grit it and go. But the gospel declares the exact opposite. The gospel holds up Jesus as the servant. And if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to let yourself be served by Jesus. That's what grace is all about. But not only is he referred to as the servant, he's also referred to as the holy and righteous one. That's a powerful phrase because it reminds us that Jesus is in a class all by himself, that he is the holy and righteous one. Again, this is language that's used all throughout the book of Isaiah, referring to the servant, the holy and righteous one. This means that Jesus isn't someone who's kind of on the Mount Rushmore of religion and spirituality where it's him and about three or four other influential religious teachers or influential uh, founders of faith in the world. No, he's on a mountain all by himself. That he is the only holy and righteous one. And this, again, is why we need him to serve us. Because if he's not serving us, we don't stand a chance because you and I are not holy and we are not righteous. You might think you're holy, and then that's called self-righteousness. You might think you're righteous, but that's just self-righteousness. But what we are as Christians, we are people who see Jesus as the holy and righteous one. That he is utterly unique. And the way that he serves us is by Dying a death that would actually do something for us, and then after his death and his resurrection, he would then declare something over us. So that once we put faith in Christ and we are being served by Jesus and salvation, we are united to him in such a way that what is true of us or what's true of him is now true of us. So Jesus declares us holy even whenever our life doesn't seem to be very holy. Jesus declares us righteous even when our life doesn't seem to be very righteous. And this declaration is what we call, um, well, it's the, the verdict of our salvation. It's him serving us, saying, look, I'm the holy one. I'm the righteous one. I'm going to give my holiness to you. I'm going to give my righteousness to you and declare this to be true of you, even when there's a disconnect between your experience and between my verdict. But as you lean into this, as you come to me over and over and over again to let me serve you, I'm actually going to take what I've declared over you, and I'm going to produce it within you. So that the more you are served by Jesus, the more practically holy and the more practically righteous you become. But understand that your holiness and your righteousness it is derived from Jesus. 
It is received from Jesus. It isn't achieved by you or by anyone else because he is the holy and righteous one. But then he goes on and says that Jesus is the author of life. Some of your translations may say source of life. That word author and source could be translated either way, author or source, which means Jesus is the originator of life, that you are here today because Jesus gave you life. But he's also the source of life in the sense that he sustains our lives. If you are alive right now, you're present among us because Jesus, whether you realize it or not, is sustaining your life. He's the source of your life. And what is true physically is even on a more deeper level, true spiritually, which is why Jesus would say in John chapter 14, verse 6, that he would declare of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Meaning if you want life, you have to come to Jesus to receive it. He not only gives you physical life, he has come into the the world to give you spiritual life, to refresh your soul, to cause your heart to come alive so that you can become the man and the woman that God created you originally to be. And so he's the author of life that we come to to find life, to receive life. But then there's a, there's a stroke of irony at this moment where Peter affirms that Jesus is the author of life. But then he turns the corner and he looks at everyone among, that's present there and says, you're the ones who tried to kill him. And in a stroke of irony, this author of life was actually killed and crucified in large part due to the clamoring of the crowd that Peter was now addressing. But we know the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died according to the plan of God. And yes, although human beings are responsible, we are culpable. God was executing a plan that he had arranged long before the creation of the earth. And and so we trust that. We believe in that. And we know that after Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. But we know that God then raised him from the grave. And after rising him from the grave, Jesus spent some time on earth hanging out with his apostles. Then he ascended into heaven, took took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And so what this tells us about Jesus' identity is not only is he the holy and righteous one, not only is he the author of life, not only is he the servant, we're told that this Jesus is the resurrected king. And so what this miracle is ultimately designed to do is designed to, put our, to draw our attention to this Jesus so that we put our faith in this Jesus. And the reality of life in a world like ours is that our life, the fate of our lives is bound up with the object of our faith. That is, whatever you are putting your faith in, that's going to determine the trajectory and the direction of your life. It's kind of like an amoeba. An amoeba is a single-celled organism that can oftentimes attach itself to something else. And when this amoeba uh, attaches itself to something else, it'll actually kind of encompass it and encloses upon it, but then it becomes utterly reliant upon whatever it attaches itself to. So that an amoeba's fate is only as strong as the fate of the object that it has given itself to. Well, life for us is only as strong as the object of our faith. That the fate of our life, the direction of our life is determined by the object of our faith. This is why we never tell people that to put their faith in their faith. This is why when a Christian is struggling and a Christian is having a hard time, our counsel to them is, well, you just need to strengthen your faith. You just need to have more faith and put your faith in the faith that you've put in Jesus. Then it gets really confusing. No, we constantly tell disciples, make sure Jesus is the object of your faith because you don't put your faith in faith because your faith is shaky. Your faith is fickle. Your faith fluctuates. Instead, you put your faith in God's grace, which is fixed, which is firm, which is as certain as Jesus seated on his throne. And when our faith is in Christ, our future is determined suddenly by his reality. 
And then we can endure whatever life may throw at us because we know that just as death didn't defeat Jesus, death isn't going to defeat us either because our fate is determined by him. He's the object of our faith. But then there's another dynamic of his identity in this story where it comes to the end of the text. This wasn't read for us a moment ago, but if you drop down to the end of, end of Peter's message in verse 21, uh, Peter would say this. He says that heaven must, be, must receive him, that is Jesus, until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. Now, he's talking to people who love Moses. Moses is their man, and he's now showing them how Jesus is better than Moses, that Moses shouldn't be the object of their faith. Instead, the object of their faith should be Jesus, the Messiah. And then he goes on. You must listen to everything he tells you. That's referring to Jesus. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. Another reference to the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 26, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. And so what we see about Jesus' identity in this moment is that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the one who's far greater than any prophet, whether it be Isaiah or Moses, whether it be Abraham, who was prophetic in his life as well. He's saying, look, all the prophets in the Old Testament, they were just preparing the way for you to see Jesus. They were paving the path for you to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, that he is the ultimate prophet. He is the one you must listen, listen to because he is the final and fullest revelation of who God is. Now, one of the things about prophets in the Old Testament is that they spoke God's word in a way that would allow God to reveal himself to his people. But when Jesus steps onto the scene in the Gospels, we're told that not only did he speak God's word, but in John chapter 1, verse 1, he actually was God's word. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word took on flesh. The Word became human and walked among us in the person Jesus. And so what you find in Jesus is someone who didn't just speak in a way that revealed God. He lived in a way that revealed God. He existed in a way that revealed God. He was the ultimate prophet, the fullest revelation of who God is. So once again, if you want to know who God is, if you want a relationship with God, you look to Jesus, you listen to Jesus, you let everything that he accomplished draw your attention to him and, and then flesh itself out in your life. And so you have this miracle that is followed up by a message by the Apostle Peter, all designed to affirm Jesus' identity, saying this is the one you look to, this is the one you listen to, this is one you trust in, this is Jesus the Messiah. But then the third dynamic of this story is that this miracle and the following message, it actually amplifies Jesus' mission. It amplifies Jesus' mission in a very significant and substantial way. So remember, Peter and John are walking into the temple, and they see this man, and they speak a word. He is healed, and everybody starts clamoring around them, wondering, how did you do this? Or are you gods? Or whatever the case may be. And, and they disarm all that, and they start talking about Jesus. 
When you get into Acts chapter 4, you would think everybody would be pleased that Peter and John was among them and that everyone would be celebrating Jesus. But when you get into Acts chapter 4, that's not what happens. In response to the miracle and the message of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are then persecuted. Peter and John become vulnerable. They become known by the crowds and the masses. And everybody's looking to them as, this, as ones who are talking about Jesus being the Messiah and telling us that we killed him and all these types of things. And, and so what you find in Peter and John's example, which is really just a hint of what Jesus experienced all throughout his ministry, is that miracle workers in the New Testament, those through whom miracles were performed, after doing so, they were always left in a more vulnerable, weaker position. This happened to Peter and John in Jerusalem in the first century. It happened to Jesus constantly. The more miracles he performed and the messages he delivered, the weaker, the more vulnerable he became. Because why? Because the world reacted against it. The world was afraid of it. The world pushed back against Jesus. And so in performing miracles, Jesus became vulnerable. Now, I know that's not how we think about miracle workers today. We think about our heroes. We think about the Avengers or we think about Superman. We think about those who are strong and powerful and in a sense they are invulnerable. And that's what we want our heroes to be. And that's who we want to try to imitate when we try to become the heroes of our own lives and our own stories. That we would live an invulnerable life. We would be strong morally. We would be strong in righteousness and in holiness and in service and all these types of things. But... The pattern in Jesus' life and the pattern in the apostles' life is that those who were actually performing miracles under the power and influence of God, they did not become less, they did not become more powerful in the process. They always became less powerful. There's a story of this in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, Jesus is walking through a crowd of people who've all gathered around Jesus, and there's a woman who had been suffering for a long time with a, with a discharge of blood. She was hemorrhaging blood, and she was desperate for healing. She was desperate for recovery, and and although a whole crowd of people were gathered around Jesus, everyone was grabbing at his clothing and trying to get his attention. This woman pressed through the crowd, and when she got close enough to Jesus, she reached out her hand and touched his robe. And there was something about her touch compared to every other touch that Jesus was experiencing that moment that got Jesus' attention. And, it, and the text would tell us that in that moment when this woman touched him in faith, that power left him. And after power left Jesus, this woman was actually healed. She was restored to full health. And you think about that pattern that in order for this woman to be healed, Jesus had to lose power. In order for this woman to be strengthened, Jesus had to be weakened. And that's more of the template for miracles. That's more of the template of the gospel, right? I mean, you think about you think about perhaps the greatest miracle that this world has ever seen, the miracle of the incarnation. What is the incarnation but the creator of the universe becoming vulnerable? God taking on flesh, and in doing so, he becomes what? He becomes weak. Why does he become weak? Jesus grew tired. Jesus grew hungry. Jesus came in such a state where people could drive nails through his hands and feet. He became killable in the incarnation. But we know that this crucifixion, this moment of, of powerlessness, this moment of utter weakness is what serves our salvation. It's what serves our becoming powerful spiritually, our becoming restored to God and restored to all that God would have for us. So you have this pattern that in order for 
people to be strengthened, the miracle workers always become weak. And this is what the gospel story is. That our strength, our salvation is dependent upon Jesus becoming weak, Jesus losing power, Jesus dying on the cross. Once again, think about the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Listen to what we read. It says, then, it says, but Jesus was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by what? We are healed by his wounds. He became weak so that we could be made strong. That's the gospel story. But in order for you to benefit from that reality and that dynamic, for that to be true of you, you have to acknowledge your weakness. You have to acknowledge your powerlessness. This is what Peter is telling the crowd. This is so important. The crowd was responsible for crucifying Jesus. They turned Jesus away. They turned him over. What was that but a power move? These were people who were exercising power over Jesus. These were people who were grasping for power apart from Jesus. And Peter's saying, look, no, one, you can't beat Jesus. The only thing you can do now is recognize that you have no power over Jesus. You have no power apart from Jesus. So if you're going to benefit from what he did, you must become weak. You must acknowledge that you are weak, that you are powerless. This is why Peter would say in verse 21, I believe, repent. Repentance is the act of acknowledging your weakness. Repentance is the act of acknowledging your powerlessness apart from Jesus. Repentance is saying, look, I can't save myself. I can't heal myself. I can't navigate a world that is broken like ours. I need a savior. I need someone else other than myself. And so repentance is you becoming weak so that you can ultimately benefit from Jesus' weakness on the cross. And when you come to Jesus in repentance, what does he say happens in verse 21? He says, now your sins can be blotted out. Your sins can be wiped away. Forgiveness can be yours. But he goes on to say, not just forgiveness. There's a refreshment for your souls. Repentance, acknowledging your weakness, acknowledging your powerlessness, it leads to your forgiveness, and it leads to refreshment for your soul. You become strong because Jesus became weak. That's this That's how this story would amplify the mission of Jesus because Jesus ultimately did not come down to perform miracles like in Acts 3. Ultimately, Jesus came down to die on the cross so that our wounds would be, so that we would be healed by his wounds, so that our ultimate salvation could be accomplished. But there's one other dynamic to this. Not only does this Miracle and message amplify Jesus' mission. It also anticipates Jesus' future kingdom. And this is where this healing becomes very hopeful for you and I. Check it out again in verse 21. After saying your sins can be blotted out, after saying that refreshment for your souls is coming, verse 21, we'll put it this way. Heaven must must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. He's saying there's coming a day when Jesus restores everything. When what this lame man experienced in his micro-narrative is going to be true of the whole macro-narrative of creation. And this too was prophesied in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35 verse, verse 5. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Get this, then the lame will, will what? 
then the lame will leap like a deer. What's happening in the story? The lame is leaping like a deer. Why is that? Well, because this story anticipates Jesus' future kingdom. This healing, this miracle, it serves as an appetizer for the main course Jesus is going to usher in through the new heavens and the new earth. Every one of you have been to restaurants where you've had appetizers, and those appetizers kind of whet your palate for the meal that is to come. Well, all the miracles in the New Testament are appetizers, whetting our appetites for the world that is to come. That there is coming a day when every lame person will leap. There is the coming a day where every sick person will be healed. There is coming a day where everyone in Christ who is dead will be resurrected and given glorified bodies. There is coming a day when Jesus restores all all things. And so every time you read a miracle in the New Testament, you want to run in that direction because it's all designed to anticipate our future. And the life of faith does what? The life of faith lives in light of the future that is coming. Therefore, we're able to engage a broken world in ways that cares for the whole person. We're able to engage a broken world in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. We're able to follow in the apostles' wake and take on whatever may come our way as a result, all the while looking to this moment when Jesus ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And and we recognize that there's coming a day when Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes and he restores our full health, not only our souls, but our bodies, bringing it together in glory. It's going to be a marvelous, marvelous day. And so this is a hopeful healing in Acts chapter 3. It anticipates Jesus' future kingdom, and it's the day that we all look forward to. It's the day that when you're aware that it's coming, it helps you suffer now. It's a day when you know that it's coming and you ask God to heal you only to see your life, only to see things kind of get worse for you. You still don't lose faith because why? You know your healing is coming. There's a day when everyone in Christ will be healed. It's just a matter of when. Sometimes Jesus does it in this life to give us flashes and appetizers of what's to come. But for everyone in Christ... This is going to be true of them in the future kingdom. And so we live and we love and we serve in light of that. We walk by faith in light of that reality. This is why Paul and the apostles are able to talk about suffering and yet in the same breath talk about suffering and rejoicing. Because they knew a better day was coming. They knew a new world was going to come and be ushered in. And so they lived in that direction. They loved in that direction. They served in that direction. They made sacrifices in that direction. And so if you and I are going to be who Jesus has redeemed us to be in the world that is, as we wait for the world that is to come, we're going to live in light of that reality. Now, one of the ways that we anticipate this future kingdom is week in and week out as partaking in the Lord's Supper. We know that One of the other apostles, Paul, would tell us to, or he would echo Jesus' words in telling the church, I want you to partake of the Lord's Supper as often as you gather together. And when you come to the table, you're going to look back and remember what Jesus has done for you. But you're not just going to look backward. You're going to pivot forward, and you're going to look into the future, and you're going to anticipate what Jesus will do for you. So every time we go to the table, that's what we're doing. And so I want to encourage you to do that now. If your faith is in Christ, I want to encourage you to approach the table and partake of the bread. That reminds you of his body given for you. Dip it in the cup 
that reminds us of his blood that was shed for our forgiveness and allow Jesus to refresh your soul, but then also allow Jesus to remind you of the future kingdom that is to come, the future reality that he's going to usher in. Let the table rekindle your hope week in and week out. So if you are believing in Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, you're going to be encouraged to go to the table and partake of this meal over the next few minutes. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to do that first. Take Jesus into your life by faith. Let him be your servant. Let him be your savior. Let him be who he is for you. And after you take Jesus into your life in faith, then go to the table and partake of the bread and the cup in anticipation of the world that is to come.